Welcome to the Harmony Christian Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged by today's message from Pastor Josh Shoemaker. Ms. Donna is here this morning, and uh, I don't think I've ever been paid a more incredible compliment than what she has paid me these past couple of times where she has taken a message that I've preached and written a beautiful, powerful poem through her, uh, and expressing that through her, her words and her gift. So I want to start this morning off. Usually I do a recap with you when I'm in a series like this, but I want to recap with this this morning. She titled it The Living Hope or The Living Gospel. Hope presides in the predominance, supremacy, exclusivity of one Lord who became flesh, the lens illuminating light, the fire igniting faith, the defeater of death. Initiator means purpose of salvation, prototype of who we are to be, creator of all, beginning and end. He became the door, the way, the truth, the life, selfless, humble, sacrificial, emptying himself to fill us with grace and love. We share in likeness, transfigured in glory, as our lives interweave with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is my favorite part. This is the pinnacle of good news from before time began until forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, you are so good. You are predominant in our lives. You are the focus of our hearts, Jesus, the one we are chasing after. We honor you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. At the very center of our faith is Jesus. He is the predominant subject. He is our doctrine and our theology, the prevailing witness of our salvation, the chief ambition of our lives. Jesus is the solid rock on which our lives are built. Not the expectation of heaven, not the fear of hell, not the church, or even the Bible alone. Without Jesus, the scriptures are incomplete and the Father remains hidden in mystery. That's what we're going to predominantly talk about here this morning. To be Christian is to place Jesus far and above everything above everything bad, and equally above everything that is good. We're going to continue this morning talking about the predominance of Jesus. And we're going to look today how Jesus defines the character of God. So if you have your Bibles, open them up with me now to Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Throughout our history... God has spoken to our ancestors by his prophets in many different ways. The revelation he gave them was only a fragment at a time, building one truth upon another. But to us living in these last days, God now speaks to us openly in the language of a son. The appointed heir of everything. For through him, God created the panorama of all things and all time. The sun is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor. And hear this, church, the exact expression of God's true nature, his mirror image. 
What is God like? This all-important question has plagued our world since it was created. Abraham wondered. Job wondered. The Israelites wondered. In fact, much of the Old Testament is the people of God trying to learn who God is while waiting for messianic deliverance. But even outside of Scripture, we see humanity in their search to answer the question of what God is like. This search has produced many religions with their version of what God is like. We see Greek mythology with their polyphony of gods. We see Islam. We see Hinduism. We see Buddhism. All of these, and there's, there's many, many more, all of these with their own version of what God is like. The question remains in our modern culture today, what is God like? Even as Christians, we project onto God what we believe he is like. There was a man who woke up one day. And when he woke up, his room was full of light as the sun shined into his room. And he thought to himself, God must be with me today. So he steps out of bed and he starts walking through the room, but the light is so bright that he doesn't see the shoe on the ground. And he steps on the shoe and he twists his ankle. Writhing in pain, he thinks to himself, God might be with me, but he's not happy. <laughs> so he begins to get ready for the day because he's, he's going to take himself to the hospital so he can get his ankle wrapped. So he's trying to get himself ready and he hears the doorbell ring and he can't quite get to the door so he just yells hey come on in and the somebody comes in and to his surprise it's his neighbor and his neighbor is bringing him a plate of cookies from a party that was left over the evening before and his neighbor sees him how he's hobbling around and he helps him to the couch and they sit there and they share a conversation and they share cookies together and the man thinks to himself well, God must not be mad at me. He sent my neighbor over to comfort me with a plate of cookies and some good conversation. So they finish up their conversation and their cookies and the man, the neighbor helps the man to his car, helps him get in his car so he can drive himself onto the hospital. When he gets in his car, he begins backing out. He flips on the radio station and immediately, I've Got Friends in Low Places by Garth Brooks starts playing on the radio. <laughs> The tune's catchy, and he's like, ah, this is good. I'm going to leave this on. So he's driving down the road, jamming out to some Garth Brooks. Pop! His tire pops. He starts pulling over to the side of the road, and he thinks to himself, well, God must not like Garth Brooks. <laughs> so he reaches up, and he switches the dial to K-Love. He's like, God's got to love K-Love. Everybody, everybody loves K-Love. So he switches the dial to K-Love, and He's sitting on the side of the road listening to, I don't know, Amazing Grace or something, uh, the new Maverick song, whatever it is. He's listening to that. And as he's trying to figure out what to do, because he can't get out of the car himself to change his tire because of his ankle, all of a sudden a man pulls up behind him, gets out of his car, comes up to the window and asks if he needs help. He explains his situation and the man agrees to change his tire for him. So the man begins changing his tire, and as he's changing his tire, the man has this thought, well, God must really love K-Love. He sent this man to me because I changed the radio station. I'm never going to listen to anything but K-Love ever again in my life. The man finishes changing the tire, and he comes up to the window, and 
before the man could say thank you for changing the tire, the other man pulls out a knife and robs him, takes his wallet, and then runs away. The man pulls off and heads back to the hospital, and on his way there, he thinks to himself, man, God must want me to be poor, or else he wouldn't have had this man steal my wallet. So he gets to the hospital. He gets out. He goes in. He gets checked in and everything, and they ask for a form of payment. He has to tell them, listen, I was just robbed, and I don't have any money on me to be able to pay for this. The doctor has compassion on the man, and he says, you know what? I will do this for you today for completely free, no charge at all. And he fixes his ankle for him and sends him on his way. And on the man's way home, the man thinks to himself, he said, man, God must have wanted me to twist my ankle so that I could go to the doctor and he could pay for my ankle to be wrapped just so I could see how good God is. You know, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's really not too far from reality. That we often project onto God, that we project onto his character what any given moment is happening in our lives or any situation is happening in our lives. People instinctively push their highest expectations and their deepest disappointments onto God. You can find this happening in the Psalms as well as the cancer wards. You see Job and his friends doing this, just like we do this with our friends. We allow our situations, both good and bad, to define the character of God for us. The problem with this is when we allow God to be defined in this way, it leaves us with all kinds of different versions of who God is. It sends us on a roller coaster ride of trying to figure out, just like it was in the Old Testament, trying to figure out who God is based off of our situation. You see this happen even in the story, in the parable of the prodigal son, which again I know has been taught, been being taught at Sunday school by Pastor Ron these past few weeks. But you see this in the story. You see this prodigal son who goes and he asks for his inheritance from his father. And the father gives him his inheritance. And the story goes that the son goes off and he lives prodigally. He, he goes and he spends and wastes all of the inheritance on wild living, the Bible says. It says that when he came to himself, he goes back to his father. But look at the way the prodigal sees himself. He sees himself as somebody who has disowned his family. He sees himself as somebody who is no more worthy to be a, no longer worthy to be called a son, but only a slave. And that's how he sees himself. But look then how he does this. He projects that view onto his father. On his way home, he's running through his head. He said, my, my father's probably not going to take me back as a son, but maybe he'll take me back as a slave. I disowned my family, therefore my father is probably going to disown me. And because of the way he viewed himself, he projected that onto the way he believed the father was going to, uh, was going to view him. My father's going to disown me and he's going to see me as a slave. The father's other son in this story stayed home and worked for his father faithfully. 
But he saw sonship as duty and assumed that his father saw sonship in the same way. That I have to earn my inheritance. I have to work and slave for what is to be given to me. The father, the father's other son who stayed home worked himself to death and never allowed himself to enjoy the abundance of his family's wealth. And very quickly in the story, we find that they are both fantastically wrong about their father. The prodigal son who believed because he disowned his family that the father would disown him, instead found the family ring and the robe of the father placed over his shoulders. That when he tried to come back to the father as a, as a slave, the father refused and placed him back into the family as a son. The other side of the story with the other son, he comes back and he's angry that they're celebrating the son who went off and lived wildly and wasted the inheritance of his father. And he's angry that that son is getting honored, but he stayed and he worked and he slaved, yet nothing was ever given to him. And he hears this from his father. He says, son, everything that I have has always already been yours. You, the work that you do never was the means of your inheritance. You received the inheritance because of my goodness and my mercy. Both sons projected onto their father how they saw themselves and both sons were completely wrong about who the father was. Yet we do the exact same thing as the prodigal son and the faithful son do in the story. We think because we have fallen short and we have messed up that we are going to um, approach a God who is retributive and who, who will make us work our way back into our inheritance. Or maybe we see ourselves as the faithful, dutiful son that has to check every, every, uh, every, every box to be accepted by the Father. And we learn in this story that that is not who God is. The Father is not defined by our good days or our bad days. He is defined, He is not defined by our experiences or our trials. The Father is exclusively defined by Jesus. He is exclusively defined by Jesus. We read it at the very beginning of this, this message here this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor, the exact expression of God's true nature, his mere image. Colossians 2, verse 8 says, Beware, lest, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus, on another 
Another instance, he's speaking to a group of Jews who are asking him if he is the Christ. And this is what he says in John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my father are one. I and my father are one. To a group of Pharisees, he says this. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. John chapter 12, verse 44 and 45. Then we get into John 17, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And it says this in verse 6. I have manifested who you really are, and I have revealed you to the men and women that you gave me. In verse 8, he says, you sent me to represent you. In verse 18, he says, I have commissioned them to represent me just as you commissioned me to represent you. In verse 26, it says, I have revealed to them who you are. John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor except the uniquely beloved Son, who is cherished by the Father and held close to his heart. Now he has unfolded to us the full explanation of who God truly is. These are just a handful of verses throughout the New Testament. I briefly went through this week and through some different resources that I had and just some verses that I knew already, wrote down verses that highlight the fact that Jesus came to express the image of the Father. I filled up an entire page just of scripture references that where Jesus declares that he came to represent who God is on this earth. And I know that that is not even scratching the surface of the times where it is explicitly mentioned uh, or it is, it is, um, it is, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Either explicitly mentioned or it is um, implied or alluded to. Thank you. Needed a, needed a thesaurus there. Thank you. <laughs> that he is the express image of God. One of my favorite verses that says this is John chapter 14. Jesus explained, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes next to the Father except through union with me. Then listen to this. To know me is to know my Father too. And from now on, you will realize that you have seen him and experienced him. Philip spoke up, one of the disciples, and said, Look, or he said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be all we need. How many of us have ever found ourselves in that situation? God, just show yourself to me, and that's all I need. Father, I'm in this difficult, trying situation, and I'm trying to figure out what you think about this situation. Are you okay with this happening or are you not okay with it? We begin to question like Philip, God, if you would just show me yourself. Show me who you are. That's all I need. Look at Jesus' response to Philip. Jesus replied, Philip, I've been with you all this time and you still don't know who I am? 
How could you ask me to show you the Father? Then listen to this. For anyone who has looked at me has seen the Father. It's not just that Jesus has some attributes like the Father. Or that Jesus kind of looks like the Father. He explicitly says, no, no, no. I am so like the Father that if you've seen me, it's like looking at the Father. We are the exact same. Jesus and the Father are the exact same. Jesus is saying not only is he like the Father, but he is so like the Father that if you look at Jesus, you are looking at the Father. This means that whatever belief about God that we can't find in the person of Jesus is not a correct belief about God. Let me say that one more time. This means that whatever belief we have about God that we cannot find in the person of Jesus, it is not a correct belief about God. Every thought, every feeling, Every doctrine we have about God has to be weighed and measured by the person and life of Jesus. Every thought, every feeling, every doctrine has to weigh itself against the person of Jesus. If it's not found in the person of Jesus, it is not found in the person of God. This, of course, is much easier to amen than it is to live. Like so many things in our walk as believers, it's way easier to agree with than it is to walk out. Why is this so hard sometimes to live out? Because for some of us, it directly confronts the angry, punitive God that many of us have grown up with and have built in our minds. The God that Jonathan Edwards preached that holds you over a pit of hell as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire and abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. This is a direct quote from from the message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached by Jonathan Edwards. That message has helped to shape the Western church's view of God. That somehow God is this angry father in the sky, ready to smite us, but thank God Jesus stepped in between me and between us and the father. And maybe we don't explicitly say it like that, but that is how we tend to believe and act out our faith that Jesus stepped between us and the Father and Jesus saved us from God's anger towards us. God was ready to cast us in the fires of hell and Jesus stopped him and that is not who God is. How do I know that's not who God is? Because that's not who Jesus was. And to believe that way is to put the Father and the Son on opposing sides. But the Father and the Son are not on opposing sides. The Father and the Son are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
This is not God because it places God and Jesus on opposing sides. Let me say this. Jesus did not reconcile God to us. He reconciled us to God. Let me say that again so you catch that. Jesus did not reconcile God to us. Jesus did not come so that God would not be angry at us anymore. Instead, he came so that we, in our delusion and our fallen nature, could be reconciled back to the Father. Jesus did not come to enable God to love us again. He came to reveal God as perfect love. That's powerful right there, church. He did not come to make a way for God to love us again or to make us lovable again to God. Instead, he came to reveal that God always is and always was perfect love. It's important for us to realize that God never changes. He is, what does the scripture say? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At the fall of man, God did not change. We did. He did not all of a sudden stop loving Adam and Eve. He did not all of a sudden decide that he needed to cast out Adam and Eve. We changed, not God. The love of God for humanity has never faltered. And if, if God never changes and Jesus came to reveal the love of God, then that means that the love of the Father, the way God feels about us, has never changed or altered. God did not come, or Jesus did not come to make us lovable to God again. He came to reveal that God always has loved us. God is perfect love because Jesus is perfect love. Amen? If God is like Jesus, then the greatest revelation to us about God is the cross. If God is like Jesus then the greatest revelation to us about God is the cross. When you look at the story of the cross, there are many figures in the story, many characters. One of the characters is a man named Judas who profits on the downfall of Jesus. God is not like Judas. In the story of the cross, there's another character named Peter. And Peter, when he was pushed to the wall, abandoned his beliefs and his principles. And he abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need. God is not like Peter. He's not like Peter who abandons us when we are at our lowest. In the story of the cross, there is another character, and this is the Pharisee, who religiously follows the letter of the law and condemns those who do not. God is not like the Pharisee. God is not like the Pharisee. Remember, Jesus came, and the ones that the Pharisees would reject, the ones that they would condemn, Jesus dined with. Not so he could 
Not so he could condone their sin, but so they could see perfect love casting out fear. God is not like the Pharisee. In the story of the cross, there is another character. His name is Caiaphas. Caiaphas was looking for a scapegoat. Someone he could accuse and put to death. God is not like Caiaphas. In the story of the cross, there's another character. His name is Pilate, who orders an execution to satisfy the cry for justice. God is not like Pilate. God does not call for an execution to satisfy the cry for justice. Then in the story, there's a man named Jesus who is like a lamb before slaughter, silently bearing our sorrows and iniquities, who being in the form of God emptied himself even to the point of death, even the death on a cross. God is like Jesus, absorbing, forgiving, and taking away the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting their sins against them. I grew up most of my life believing the narrative that, that God's position in the cross was the Father in the sky turning his back on Jesus because he couldn't look at sin. There's one problem with that theology. It falls apart when you read Scripture. Where was God when Jesus was being hung on the cross? Where was God when the nails were going through Jesus' hands and feet? Where was God when the lashes were being whipped on his back? Where was God when the sins of the world were being poured out upon this man named Jesus? He was in Christ, with Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. The idea that God cannot look at sin is one of the greatest lies of the enemy. When Adam and Eve fell, where did God go? Back to the garden, calling out for Adam and Eve. And you jump over to the scriptures in the, in the New Testament where it literally says that his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Not only can God look at sin, God was willing to come and tabernacle among the sinners. God was not in any of those other characters in the story of the crucifixion, but he was in Jesus. He was in Jesus, taking away the sins of the world, forgiving. Where was God? He was with Jesus when Jesus looked down from the cross 
at all of the men who accused him, of all of the men who beat him, of all of the men who spat upon him. And he was in Jesus when he looked at that group of people and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What is God like? God is exactly like Jesus. The Father is exactly like Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say. You've heard me use this term before. It comes from uh, other theologians. It says this, Jesus is perfect theology. He is perfect theology. Without Jesus, the world still asks the question, what is God like? But in Jesus, the world has its answer. Without Jesus, God remains hidden in mystery, and we still are trying to figure out who God is. But in Jesus, we know exactly what God is like. He is exactly like the Messiah. He is exactly like the Son. Let's go ahead and stand together this morning. My challenge this morning to all of you is this. Every belief system you have about God, every feeling that you have about God, test it against the person of Jesus that is found in the Gospels. Weigh it and measure it against Jesus. And if it is not found in the person of Jesus, then it is not who God is. Jesus is what God has to say about himself. Father, we thank you. Father, that it's no longer a mystery who you are, Father. Jesus, we don't have to keep uh, continue asking the question, what is God like? Because you have answered the question in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is what you have to say about yourself. Father, I, I'm thankful God, that you heard the cry of humanity when we wanted to know what you were like and you answered. Father, I pray for those in the room this morning who have maybe had a view of God that has been skewed or maybe has, has based their opinion and their thoughts about God based off of their situations or their circumstances or things that have happened to them in their life. Father, I pray that today that they would be able to look past all of that and see the person of Jesus and know the answer of who you are. Father, that you are not an angry, judgmental God, but instead you are a God who absorbs the sins of humanity. You are a God who forgives unapologetically. You are a God of mercy and grace after grace, after grace, after grace. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus to show us who you are. That you are the God 
of perfect love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then the next verse, you didn't send your son into the world to condemn the world, but instead that through him the world might be saved. Hallelujah. Father, we honor you for the good father that you are. And Jesus, I thank you that you are healing our image of you through the person of Jesus. And we honor you for that today, Lord. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more messages like this or information about our church, please visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org.